Well, welcome. If you're new, here's what we do. We walk through books of the Bible, right? I don't want to think that it's self-evident what we do up here. You know, it's kind of interesting. Like half the service is somebody up here, usually me, talking uh, out of a book, this right now, that's 2,600 years old. It's like, what are we all doing here, right? I mean, in one sense, what's going on here? Well, what we're doing is we're walking through books of the Bible, verse by verse, word by word, line by line. It's because we have a deep conviction that everything needs to start with the Bible, that God has spoken, and that the word has a powerful effect on people. A lot of times people come up to me afterwards and they'll say something like, man, uh, you really make the Bible relevant. Well, that's actually not what we do here. We don't make the Bible relevant. We show the relevancy of the Bible to people because it's so relevant. It's not what has happened. It's what is happening. So if you'll open up to Daniel chapter 4, I, I want to tell you a little bit about where we are in the book of Daniel. And we have to do this every once in a while to catch everybody up because it's all connected. And that's one of the reasons we walk through the books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line. Uh, you've got these four guys, basically, Daniel and his three friends, and, and they find themselves in Babylon, right? And Babylon's a lot. Think America. That's what, it's, okay, here, here's Babylon. Uh, and the question, by the way, is are you a Babylonian or are you a believer, right? Or are you a, uh, are you more like the culture or are you more like the church? That's what you, or, the, or Christian. Uh, you know, these are the, are you more American or are you more Christian at the end of the day? You've got to kind of ask those questions and wrestle with that, right? Because we're, you know, let me tell you about Babylon. Um, Babylon was basically the first world empire. These men find themselves in Babylon, and they're able, and this is so hard, it's so hard for you, right? It's so hard for all of us. They're able to be in the world, but not of it. And man, is that hard, right? Because it's easy to not be in the world and then just judge it and create a monastery and be outside of it and have holy huddles and create, Christianize everything and make a subculture and judge it. That's easy. You know, and then it's also very easy to just be worldly, and well, you know, between you and everybody else at work or in your neighborhood or, you know, in your school, I mean, yeah, there's no difference. There's no distinction. You know, that's not helpful either. And so what we see with these guys, and I don't know how they did it. We're trying to learn, right? They, they worked a government job for an ungodly government. They did that. Uh, they dressed like everybody else. They would have had to. They learned the language like everybody else. They would have had to. They went to the public universities of their day and put up with all the ideology there because they had to learn other things too and they were good, but they had to do all that. And, and, and here's another thing just to realize, that, and this is good for us to know too as we turn into this book and look at it together, that it's really hard to live in Babylon, and often they're suffering, and we don't want to talk about it, but it happens. Okay, these, these young men were prisoners of war and victims of uh, human trafficking. That's what they were. And they were brought 700 miles that they had to walk as teenagers away from their family and friends that they never see again. So that's how it begins. And then if it couldn't get worse, they became vegetarians, Okay. <laughs> Okay, maybe there's a few of you who don't think that's bad, but most of us think that's terrible, okay? Um, they became vegetarians. They did it will, will, you know, willingly because you know, they, they, uh, they wanted to kind of draw a line for themselves, so, so that ends up having to happen. And then uh, they're, they're the minority in their culture, and then this is something I didn't talk about in the first week, and I should have because it comes up like six times in chapter one, and I just didn't, didn't have enough time to talk about everything, is that when they are made prisoners of war, victims of human trafficking, dragged 700 miles to a new place to worship these false gods, they make them eunuchs. And that shows up again and again and again in chapter one. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, you need to ask your parents, okay? But they'll talk to you about that afterwards. But here's what you need to know. This is, this is what, it's like, well, what does the spirit of Babylon do? It tries to indoctrinate the next generation in the school system, and it loves to emasculate men. Because the last thing that you would want, the last thing the spirit of Babylon would want would be strong men who could be husbands and fathers and pass on the faith to the next generation. And so that's actually where we are. We live in Babylon. Babylon isn't a city. Babylon is a spirit. And if you're not aware of it, and you're not fighting against it, and you're not trying to live a counterculture and a faithful life to Christ, 
You're going to be just like everybody else. And so what we're looking at today is we're going to see how Daniel continues to be faithful while he's in Babylon and while he has to deal with the king. We're going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at King Nebuchadnezzar. I'll read about him in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all of the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So we're going to be introduced again to King Nebuchadnezzar last time in this book where King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be mentioned. But here's what you need to know about King Nebuchadnezzar. In this chapter, I'm going to tell you, it's a long chapter, guys. We're going to be here for a while. It's a lot of content. I'm going to try to go fairly quickly through it, but it's all very important. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, very wealthy, very powerful, non-Christian king who becomes a king and tells you his story in this chapter. It's the only testimony we have of a non-Christian king becoming a king in the Bible. So he's going to get up here and he's going to share his entire heart. And he's going to tell you how he became, basically how he became a believer, how he became a Christian. And here's what he's going to say. God had to humiliate him because he wouldn't humble himself. And that's a, because it's like, well, what do you want? Do you want to humble yourself or would you like to be humiliated? Right? It's like, well, you, if you haven't been humiliated, you've probably seen somebody humiliated. I, I certainly have seen that. It's not fun. Right? Humility is like, I'll do this quietly. Hum- humiliation is, this will be public, right? Humility is, well, give me some time. I'm going to gradually work on this, and I'm going to be honest about it. I'm going to work on it gradually. Humiliation often happens instantaneously in people's lives. Because here's what happens with, right? Humility is, I confess it. And that's hard, and who knows how she'll react, or, you, or you know, your boss will react, or your friend will react, or how they'll view you differently. But, but humility is, I'm going to confess my struggle and get help. Humiliation is I'm going to get caught, and I've seen that happen. And then it's like, well, it wasn't just that. It was that you were lying, and, then it's, and now it's public in its nature. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell us a story. He's going to say, hey, listen, God humiliated me because I wouldn't humble myself. This is a whole chapter. God humiliated me because I wouldn't humble myself, but it was really good for me. And that's a good thing to know, too, because I know people who terrible things have happened in their life. And they can look back on their life, and at least to some extent, they can say something like, well, that was terrible. Maybe that was even a terrible. Some people have decades that are terrible. Those of you who are older in the room know what that's like. It's like, well, that was just, the 90s were hard, or whatever it is. It's like, it was just very, very hard. You know, and then it was over, and thank God, and I learned a lot. And, you know, they say the first 20 years of marriage are, are, are very hard, okay? After that, it gets a little bit easier. Um, but there, there's a lot of difficulty in life. And so, and, and here's a good question just to ask yourself, too, because I want this to be, you know, we read the Bible so that it would be real to us and we could apply it. Do you learn lessons willingly or painfully? Most people, let's be honest, right? We learn them painfully, right? Because the truth is, you don't, it's like, well, you've got so much to do anyway, and you'd like to relax, and who's got enough time to, I don't know, read about things and uh, research and meet with people and repent and grow and learn? All that's hard. So what tends to happen in our life, we don't learn things willingly, we learn them painfully. It's like, well, you know, your marriage is, it's been 10 years, and you have this terrible marriage, and you can't communicate, and you hate each other. You haven't had any kind of intimacy for a year or two. And the only thing that's keeping your marriage together is the kids. It's like, well, that's more normal than you might think. And then, but now it's like, well, it's just a mess. And it's so complex. And but it's now, but someone used the D word and they you know, probably shouldn't, but they did. And then you're like, well, now I need to know. And now it's really, really painful. You know, that happens. It's like, well, you know, you probably should know how to do your finances and you probably need to figure that out and, you know, give, save, live and, that would be helpful, and the sooner you find that out, that would be the better, and, this, and the sooner you learn how to be generous and how to save and how to live you know, with contentment, that would be great, but what happens with most people is you know, their whole life falls apart financially. They, you know, they keep increasing their standard of living, they, they keep buying the bigger, whatever it is. 
Uh, and they get massive amounts of consumer debt, or who knows what it is, but then they, 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 don't, then they need help. It's like, well, and praise God that what we're going to learn in this story is there's grace in all of that. But it would be much more helpful to learn things willingly, right? Someone once said, life is too short and painful to learn everything by experience. And so you want to learn from other people. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to come in here, and he's going to share about his life. I want us to see what he says in verse 2. He said, it seemed good to me. So he, I want to share this. It's, a, it's humiliating, but I want to share it. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Know this, what makes Christianity unique and different is what, it's about what God's done for you, not what you've done, you've done for him. And we say this again and again, and I, and I want you to, it's like, well, no, it's not just a clever thing Kyle tries to say. Um, it's something that arises right out of scripture. There it is, verse two. It's not religion. Religion is like, oh, look what I do, right? And everybody has their own religion, right? The modern religion is I reduce, I recycle, I ride my bike. God loves me. Uh, I'm better than other people. I eat, you know, whole organic food. I only shop at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. That's the modern millennial hipster religion. Uh, and therefore, other people will love me because I do these things. And I will be okay. And Mother Earth and nature will love me, right? It's all, it's all religion. It's just a new form and package. Um, Christianity is, this is what God's done for me. It's so humbling. I'm such an idiot. And I'm so sinful. And I'm so broken. And I couldn't get myself out of this if I wanted to. And that was the situation that Nebuchadnezzar was in. And so anyway, this is what God did for me. That's what, that's what it's all about. So he basically says, hey, I want to tell you this. But by the way, you know, we, we say this often here. And there's just a couple things that we think it's really helpful for Christians to know how to do. And one of them is to share your story. That, because here's, here's the principle. Most times people are, are more willing to hear your story than the story. This being the story of the gospel. And oftentimes, I mean, that, right? Aren't we all about kind of sharing our stories, right? We all love documentaries. We, love, we all kind of have something on Instagram called our stories. And we love to just share our lives, and that's a very normal thing. And so for you to share your story, which is just, your story is simply my life before Christ, my life at meeting Christ, my life now with Christ. That's what it is. Well, anyway, he, he wants to share these things. He says, he says, okay, let me tell you what my God has done for me. And then I want you to see what he says in verse 4. He says this. Um, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house. So this is where the problems start, right? How many problems start because you didn't have enough to do? Or, or because you had a little bit too much money and a little bit too much time, and you lived alone a little bit too much, right? By the way, one of the problems with him is he's isolated, which one of the things God says to the king, say, don't be isolated, because that's, right, that's, that's when you're in trouble, right? My life's so different. I have an office at the other wing of the hall with my own bathroom, and it take, you got to go through my four secretaries to get for, to me. And I, I'm in a bubble, and I live an isolated life. He, he says this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house, and I was prospering in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid, and I lay in bed in the fancies, whatever those are, okay? <laughs> We're not sure. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I want to talk. You have to understand the context. So Nebuchadnezzar, um, he grew up as a rich, entitled, spoiled brat. His dad was king, and his dad died when Nebuchadnezzar was 29 years old. So Nebuchadnezzar came, became king at a very young age. It's all historically verified. Um, and why do I say that? Because why did Nebuchadnezzar struggle with pride so much? Because he had never been under authority. Right? We know this. There's a connection between never being under authority and getting in lots of trouble usually. Right? That's why fatherlessness is, is often a predictor of, of uh, prison. Going to prison, that's one thing. Uh, but I see, let me just tell you, and, and you know, I'm not thinking of one person when I say this, but how I see it and how I've seen it for 15 years in the church culture is that many men, they don't want to be under authority, but they want to be in authority. 
Men, men, and they are the most dangerous men, right? And everybody in there, like, their wife's embarrassed by them, right? It's like, oh, honey, can't we ever find a church? No, we can't. I, I can't get along with any of the pastors. In fact, here's what we'll do, and this is what a lot of men do who don't want to be under authority. We'll start a house church. It's like, listen, you don't need house churches in America. You might need them in Afghanistan. Uh, now, I'm not saying, maybe you do in certain contexts, okay, what, but what I'm simply saying is the reason that most men start house churches is because they don't want to be under anyone else's authority. Because I know these men. I've met them before. I've seen how frustrated their families are by them and how embarrassed their wives are by them. It's like, yeah, well, we can't be in a community group because, you know, I don't get along with so-and-so, which is another way to say I don't want them to know me. You know, and I, I, you know, I can't, I'll pick the preaching out. We won't sit under preaching. I'll just go on and I'll kind of pick from this website and then we'll go from this website and then we'll go from this website. I won't actually sit under anything consistently. I know I'm not going to go to a weekender. No, I'm not going to serve. No, I'm not. But I would like to be in authority. So that, well, that's a very dangerous person. Well, that's exactly what happens in Nebuchadnezzar. So he doesn't want to be in authority. Then, then on top of that, he's rich. And there's nothing wrong with being rich except, you know, we always say nothing wrong with having stuff, but stuff can't have you. And, and you know, stuff has him. Right? And, and, and if it, you had that much stuff, it'd probably have you too, right? He has power, he has possessions, he has pleasure. Um, he built, the, you know, you can Google this later, he, seventh, seven wonders of the ancient world. He built the uh, hanging gardens in Babylon. He built it for one of his wives. So I don't know what you're doing for Valentine's Day, okay, but that's, <laughs> he, he set a pretty high standard there. Um, but, you know, he would do that. And so um, he, he was, and here's what's interesting. You read these stories and you go, you know what, actually, he's just doing He's just able to do what you and I wish we could do. He's just like, well, I'll build a bigger house and I'll have more people work for me and I'll have more time to relax, go on vacation, eat and have others do things for me. It's like, well, let's be honest. That's how most of us would like things to be if we could, right? Nebuchadnezzar's just a lot better at it than we are. He's just been a lot more successful than we are, right? And then we get mad at that kind of, oh, forget that. It's like, well, you couldn't even do that if you tried. And so, you know, that's why you're, you're upset. And so, so ne but anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar, he's very, very wealthy, and, and he's at ease, and then this is good to know, you know, you get, the, you know, there's two dangers, not being under authority, that's a big danger, um, having a life of ease, that's another big danger, right? Like, the most dangerous man, men are bored men. You know, it's like the guy who doesn't have enough time to do, he starts looking at websites he shouldn't look at, he starts knowing way, way, way too much about alcohol, he starts having so many goofy hobbies in his 40s. His why? Because, well, he has too much time on his hands. And that's actually a very dangerous person to do that. Like, you know, King David, when he got in all this trouble, and King David got in a lot of trouble, if you know that story. You know, he sleeps with a woman, he kills her husband. It's, you can read about it sometime. But it, it all starts, it says, when every other king was at war, you know, which is, you know, war will wake you up. War will make you alert. And war will kind of bring in, this is what's important, this isn't. But it says, when every other king went to war, David laid on his couch. That's how the story of David and Bathsheba starts. Right? When, and I get it. We're not saying that you can't retire. We're just saying you can't retire from life. You know, you can't retire from the kingdom of God. I was meeting this week with somebody who's been retired for close to a decade. Uh, but, but he's giving his time and his energy to the next generation to investing and to discipling. So anyway, he says, he, he kind of shares his story. He says, hey, I, I had a lot of ease. My life was, was really easy. And uh, he's going to go on and tell us something else for a second. But let me say this. You know, we actually, what you want in your life, you think, if we think about it for like, if you think about it for five minutes, you might think that you want ease in your life, if you thought about it for five minutes. But I think if you thought about it for, I don't know, five days or five weeks, you probably don't actually want that. I don't know if, you, maybe I'm the only one who's had this experience. I've, I've been on vacations before, great vacations. And I've kind of thought at the end, okay, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to go home. 
There's other work to be done. There are things, you know, we, you, know you read uh, Genesis chapter one, it's like, yep, work is, is a good thing that's given to us before sin and the fall enters the world. You were meant to work, right? You were meant to subdue, you were meant to cultivate. If you ever go, well, how do we get lighting and indoor plumbing and air conditioning and planes? It's like, it's because mankind was created to cultivate and subdue, right? You weren't meant for consumption. Like too many people, it's like, what, what beers can I drink? What television shows can I watch? What YouTube videos can I Google? It's like, stop it, right? I mean, it's gotta be more, like, we all can do that to an extent, but our life can't be about consumption. It needs to be about production and cultivating. Like, you are meant to confront evil with good. It's like, that'll get you up in the morning, wouldn't it? It's like, yeah, if I actually believe that. And how about you take all the chaos in your life, and gosh, there's a lot. You know, and you can start with yourself, and you turn that into order. Well, that would, okay, confront something you fear. Okay, all right, you'll be busy for the next 20 years. That's like, and on top of that, know Christ, make him known, make some disciples, you know, then have a family and raise your kids and you'll be so busy. But you're like, you'll wake up one day, you won't, even, you won't even ask what the purpose of life is. It will be so, you'll just know it, you're like, this is it, and time will fly by. And then you'll come to the end of your life and you'll have a legacy and a lineage. Anyway, so he, he goes on, and here's what he says next. Uh, so I made a decree to all the wise men. So he goes, you're going to read verse 6. It's like you read this before, right? It's, okay. Because um, it's exactly what happens in chapter 2. To the wise men of Babylon, they should be brought before us, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So he goes to the wise men and says this. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they came in. I told them the dream. They couldn't tell me the interpretation. It's like this is, this happens a lot in stories. You, it happens in the Gospels. It happens in the Old Testament. You read stories and you go, didn't this just happen two chapters ago? Um, so didn't two chapters ago he have a nightmare, Nebuchadnezzar? He be, he's afraid about it. And then he goes to other people, not Daniel, not Daniel's friends. Instead he goes to the exact same people. He asks them for help and they can't help him. So why would he do that again? It's like, well, it's the same reason that we do. We continue to go back to the same things that haven't satisfied us, right? You go back to the website. You go back to the bottle. You go back to the relationship. I mean, who knows where you go, right? We all, each of you has different places that you go. And then you go there and you go, well, that really wasn't that satisfying, but you know, we'll see in a while that, but that's what sin is, it's insanity. We just keep going back to the same things that don't satisfy us. And then, and then, and then he finally goes to Daniel. Well, let's read that real quick, because I want you to see this. So then, you know, he basically goes to Daniel. Um, he says, at last, Daniel came in before him. He who is named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods, I told him the dream. So he goes and tells him the dream. So it's like, this is an interesting thing to think about. You know, and when, and it, when you read the Bible, a good Bible reader, or a good reader of any book, history book or fiction book, a good reader is always a confused reader. That's like the definition of being a good reader. You're taking notes, you're asking questions, you're wondering why all these things are happening. Well, anyway, with, with Daniel, you, you got to go, well, why, why is Daniel called in last? And, and there's really one main reason is he doesn't want God's word in this situation. He doesn't want God's word to speak to this. And, and there's a lot of areas of our life where we don't want God's word to speak to things, right? In fact, what's interesting is, and I'm going to read you the dream quickly in a little bit, but almost all the commentators say he already knows what the dream means. Because it's going to be a dream, a big tree, and the tree's cut down. Well, guess what? Trees were a big representation of either nations or governments or rulers, so he knows there's a big tree that's getting cut down. Guess what? It's you. But here's the thing, and this is so helpful because this is what you and I do. Um, first of all, we, we, we want to go to other places because we don't like what God's word says because what God's word says usually involves us repenting. You know, there's certain people often that we'll go and talk to because it's like, well, you know, this person doesn't know God's word very well or, you know, maybe they, have the, maybe they worship the same idol, so I'll just talk to them about it. 
Because then they'll affirm me and my worldliness, and it's nice, misery loves company, and that'll be great. Um, but if you go to God's word, it says something like, okay, well, you know, actually, you're pretty stingy. You know, and yeah, you're not very generous at all, and you probably need to learn how to be generous, and you also need to be a little more wise with your money, and you probably need to learn contentment. You're like, well, who wants to do that? Because then I have to change, and I'd, I'd rather just talk to somebody who's going to affirm me in what I already believe, and so that I don't really have to change, you know? Yeah, um, we could, you, you could take many different areas of your life and say, are, are we willing to actually go to the Word of God, let it speak to us, so that we would be the ones that would have to change and have to repent? The answer is often no. But then here's the second thing, he won't look at the dream, which is just another thing, it's like, here's a great question to ask, a terrifying question to ask yourself, like, you know, and, and really think, if you thought about maybe one question this week, what do you know that, you, that you're ignoring right now? What do you know about that you're not listening to? What do you already know the answer to? It's like, you know, what do you need to do in a situation? Well, I was told this by a pastor, he said, most counseling is listening to people, and then they already know what they need to do. Most, it's like, you are, what do I need to do in my marriage? Well, and here's the answer to what you need to do in your marriage, what you don't want to do. Because you've already been doing everything you want to do, and it hasn't been working. And so you have to actually do the thing that pops into your mind that you don't want to do, and that'll be really hard. And, and, that, and, and then you've got to admit, you've got to quit rationalizing things, you've got to quit using euphemisms, right? Because what will happen if you're willfully blind, and we've all been, will, we all are willfully blind, right? Willfully blind is not I can't know it, not I don't know it, but I, I won't know it. I'll push it down and I'll suppress it and I'll act like it's not there. And then, but I, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this from experience, I'll tell you this from seeing other, happen to other people, if you're willfully blind to something and then it happens, it's worse for you. Because then you're like, well, I saw it coming. And I saw the warning signs, you know. I'm willfully blind about my kid's rebellion. You know, and everybody else has kind of tried to say something to me, but I just said he's sowing his wild oats. I just said it's his teenage years. You know, uh, yeah, everybody tells me I drink too much, but I don't. I mean, no, I've got it under control. You know, whatever that is for you, right? People lie to themselves all the time. That's not pornography. I wasn't looking at pornography. They'll call it something else so, so they can lie to themselves so that their own conscience feels better. It's called willful blindness. You have to be really smart to do it, but we do it. And so here, here he goes on. Here's what he says. He says, oh, Belshazzar. Um, he says, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then I love this. He says, no mystery is too difficult for you. Literally what he says, what it literally means is no secrets trouble you. And, and here's, here's what's interesting to think about, and, and I think really helpful, is that what we, the, one of the reasons God uses Daniel, and Daniel's humble too. Daniel's humble now, and you know, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humbled. But Daniel is the kind of guy, and don't you want to be this? Don't you want to be this kind of woman, this kind of man? Daniel's the kind of person that people can come to when they have difficulties in their life, when they have secrets that they need to tell. When they, you know, again, people will give you the fine china of their life if you'll listen. You know, if you'll be humble and you'll ask questions and you'll be open about your weaknesses. I mean, you'd be surprised. And if you really listen and ask questions, you'd be surprised. People are incredibly interesting and they'll tell you all types of things. And a lot of them are really hard things. Well, well anyway, we have to be the type of people that can listen to these things when, when, uh, when people say them. And, and it reminded me this, this last week, I've got, I talk about my kids a lot. I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. This week, my kids at the dinner table, one of my kids said, um, I know bad words. <laughs> Literally said that. Said I know a few bad words, and uh, and the other one said, Yeah, I know, I know one too. You know, and um, and we we said, um, 
you know, we, and we, learned, we didn't come up with this ourselves. We learned this from other couples that we've learned from. But we just, one of the rules of parenting is never, ever, ever. It's, it should be a rule for life, but it's certainly a rule for parenting. Never be shocked and never be surprised by anything that your kids tell you. So we just said, we said, really? We said, um, I bet you can't tell me a bad word I've not heard. And what, what am I doing there? I'm taking, I'm saying, look, dad knows. You're not going to scare dad. You don't know something dad doesn't know. And, uh, and, so, and so they, well, I'm not going to tell you, but they said a word or two, okay? <laughs> and one of the words, I was like, that's not the right word. You're very close. I don't, <laughs> I don't want you to learn that one. Um, but but it, was, it was a really fun moment for us. It, it, fun's a shallow word, but it was a neat moment for us because what we were able to do with our kids, and I hope we can do this more, is like, hey, listen, we're going to be a safe place. Mom and dad are not going to be the people who are naive, and your cool friends know things that we don't know. And you're not going to be able to scare us or shock us with anything that you say. And so hopefully that just creates a kind of a culture. And it was a, it was a cool moment for our family. And it, it kind of opened their eyes to who we are. And then it also opened our eyes to, wow, okay, here they are, young kids, but, you know, we're not trying to overly shelter them, but here they are, they're hearing things. So anyway, so, so we, that's the kind of person that we want to be with people. We want to be the kind of people that people can bring their difficulties to. So quickly, I'll, I'll tell you, he reads the story. So he says this, verse 10. Um, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. And then he, verse 10, he says, I saw a tree, it was high. I'm going to go over this quickly. Verse 11, the tree grew and it became strong. Verse 12, it's beautiful and it has lots of fruit. So it's this gorgeous picture of a massive tree. Um, but then he says, verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay on my bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, we don't know if it's an angel, we don't know what it is, uh, came down from heaven, verse 14, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. And look how graphic the language is of what happens. And lop off its branches, so cut those off too. And strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and let the birds from its branches. And then a hopeful verse 15, but leave the stump with its roots to the earth. And he talks about that. And so basically he says, there's gonna be this huge tree. It's gonna be cut down. It's gonna be fully torn apart. Everything that depended on it is going to have to scatter, but then there's this hope, right? And there's always hope in the Bible. And the hope is, hey, there's going to be a stump still. And so look what he says in verse 16. He says this, um, let his mind, speaking of the tree now in, in, in uh, human terms, let his mind be changed from a man's and let, the, and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. One of the things we're seeing here, and we get a dramatic picture in the life of Nebuchadnezzar over the next 10 verses or so of where sin leads, right? And the Bible will often give us extreme examples of people of, of, of how it took them, like we talked about last week, the fiery furnace is an extreme example of, of how we all are, can be punished for following God. Um, this week we'll see um, what ends up happening to Nebuchadnezzar actually happens to us often spiritually. So here's the first thing that happens. Sin makes him stupid, right? Sin, sin, and that, you know that's what happens, right? And sin makes, I mean, there is an insanity to sin. I don't have time to get into it too much, but you see it, all right? You, often we don't see it in our own sin, but you know, the classic example, and I've given this before, but you know, you see usually a man, sometimes it is a woman, I've seen that too, but usually it's a man and he leaves his beautiful children and his beautiful wife and moves across the country to marry somebody half his age. And everybody can see it, unless you're willfully blind to it, right? Unless you think that you just need to be tolerant, which means you just accept everything and, and he's okay and he can do whatever he wants to do. No, no one thinks that. Everybody thinks, what are you doing with your, how could you do that? 
There's an insanity to it. But there's an insanity to any of us going back and doing the same sins again and again and again that didn't satisfy us last time, that we told God we wouldn't do again, that we made commitments, that you tied yourself into relationships with, whatever it is, but it was late and you were tired and you were hungry and you were angry and you were alone, whatever it is. And so then you did it. It's insanity. But that's the first thing we see. It's like that's what sin is. Verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, um, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he sets over it, the lowliest of men. Just want to talk about that phrase in that verse, um, that, that you would know that the most high rules. That, that's actually one of the major themes in the book. So what, what, what creates humility is understanding the sovereignty of God. And I'm not going to get into this in great detail, but... You know, what creates pride is thinking somehow you're in control. Somehow you can make things happen. And, and humility is just like, you know, I mean, you, one time, from a human perspective, we have to admit, illness and injury are pretty arbitrary in how they're handed out. And that's a really humbling thing. Like, it's a really humbling thing to realize, you know, God's sovereign, and even where I am and the time I'm born has had a lot to do with anything that I might have. You know, it's like, okay, so you were, imagine you were born, I don't know, 500 B.C., in, in, in what is today Asia. It's like, well, you won't have anything that you have. You'll, we'll all be poor. You know, and then you realize, well, my parents and then my IQ and a couple other things have been really, really helpful. So the sovereignty of God is just this idea. It's the idea that God's in control of everything. And now it doesn't mean we understand all of that. And I hope this is comforting because people get scared when the sovereignty of God's talked about, right? I mean, because people, people talk about it and they apply it to every little situation and not that they shouldn't, but because God is sovereign of everything. But what you need to know is that Christians have wrestled, believed, deeply believed, but wrestled with the sovereignty of God. That large portions of the Bible are wrestling with God's sovereignty. The book of Job is wrestling with it, believing it, but wrestling with it. The Psalms, go read the Psalms, go pick up a couple Psalms and it's like, why God, you're in control, why? And there's all these questions like, well, why me? And why now? And why this? And I mean, there's a lots of whys. But, but the, the, um, the alternative is not better. Let me say that. The alternative is that God's not in control. That God can't do anything. That God didn't see it happening. That God doesn't know the future. And we, we deep, Christians have deeply believed both that God is completely in control and humans are responsible. Right? When you see two things in the Bible, this is a good thing to know. When you see two things in the Bible that seem to contradict itself themselves. I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. But when you see two things that contradict themselves, you just believe in both. I believe both. I believe that God's sovereign and I believe I'm in control. And when you live like that, that's actually the most meaningful way to live. God, I read one quote this week that said, God is, man is free because God is sovereign. And so we see this idea of the sovereignty of God. And then I want to quickly read on. Here's what it says. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed. So he doesn't, he, he knows what the dream means and he doesn't want to tell him. You know, um, look what he says at the end of that verse. My Lord, may the dream, this is the end of verse 19, be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Like, you know, one of the things you realize is if you love people and they're lost and they're not following Christ, you don't enjoy saying hard things to them. You know, your rebellious son, your lost dad, your mother-in-law who's, you know, doesn't believe in God or whoever they are, your, your boss who's an agnostic, it's like, well, you know, maybe you have an opportunity to say something and you don't really want to because it's really hard and you love them and you, you don't, you don't want to, who wants to talk about hell? Who wants to talk about judgment? Who wants to talk about sin? Well, the answer is none of us. 
And so he says, hey, this is very difficult, but then he goes on, I won't read all of this, verse 20 and 21, he resums it all up, and then in verse 22 he says this, it is you, O king. So he has to say, you already know this, but you're the tree. And he goes through all of these things, and then look what he says in verse 24. He says this, this is the interpretation, O king. And this, this helps, I, I find this helps to soften things when you talk to people about the gospel, about Christianity. He says, this is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. In other words, he's saying, I'm just, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. You know, hey, I'm, I'm going to say some things to you that you probably don't want to hear. It's probably going to be confrontational. Not necessarily, but, but you, I don't want it to be, but you can't talk about important things and not offend people. Do you know what I mean? You can't talk about heaven and hell and God and sin and salvation and eternity and not offend anybody. It's like, well, you're going to offend people. You don't want to be any more offensive than you need to be, and you need to say, hey, listen, the same word I'm giving to you, I'm trying to live out myself. You're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. You need to repent, and I need to repent. You may need to repent something different than I need to repent, but we all need to repent. And so he says all these things. And then he, he talks to him. He says, here's what's going to happen, right? Verses 25 and 26, I won't read all that to you. He basically says, you're going to become like an animal. And you're, you're, everything that has been said true, you're going to become like and then in verse 27, he says, therefore, he gives them, he says, this is, here, this, this wouldn't have to happen to you if you'll do this. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Because people often say, well, what do I need to do? He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. That means there's things you need to stop doing, right? You know, when you come to, when you come to Christ, it's like, I need to stop saying that. I need to stop going there. I need to get out of that terrible relationship. You know, I heard one guy said, told, said that 80% of his vocabulary had to change when he became a Christian. So sometimes there's things that you need to stop doing, but then look what he says next. He says, in your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, and there's things you need to start doing. And the most, the, the most miserable person, the most miserable Christian is the Christian who's trying to stop doing things without start, starting to do new things, if that makes sense. You know, it's not just don't look at porn, don't be lustful. It's like change everything about how you view men and women. Embrace... Uh, the, what the Bible says about sexuality and marriage, and understand that. that, that it, it's, it's not, you know, don't, don't, lo yeah, don't love money, okay, but have a biblical worldview of money. Understand, give, save, love. It, it, you know, the, the best example of this in Scripture is there's a verse, Ephesians 4.28. I'm not going to go to it now. But Paul says something really interesting. He says, he says, let the thief no longer steal. That's stop doing things. And then he says, but instead, let him learn to work so he can be generous to others. That, that's what you see. You see the holistic transition from not doing something to doing something. So that's what he says. And then look what happens in verse 30. And the king answered and said, is not this, or sorry, verse 28. And this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's, um, he's, he's warned all of these things, but then look what happens. Verse 29, what you and I often do. At the end of 12 months, so for 12 months he didn't repent. For 12 months he didn't listen, Right? And we've talked about this. I mean, some people have whole seasons of their life where they don't repent or listen to God. They call it high school. They call it college. They call it their single years. They, it was when they, you know, lived in the big city. I mean, who knows? When they moved to Denver, when they lived in Asheville. It's like, well, that whole season of my life, I didn't repent. And that happens to people. Well, the, 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 for this whole 12 months, he doesn't repent. It says, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, at verse 30, and the king answered and said, and this is, this is the heart of pride. Is this not great Babylon which I have built? So lots of eyes. It's all about what I'm doing. I built the business. I built my family. 
you know, I made all this money, which I have built by my power as a royal residence, and here's all the reason I did it, and for the glory of my majesty. And then because of that, look what happens in verse 31. While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And then in verses 32 to 33, he tells him again that he's going to become like a beast. So how do you humble yourself so you won't be humiliated? Because you don't want to, you know, part, part of the goal is like, let's not even get to the place where something like this needs to happen. That's like rule one of life when you watch other people. You're like, you know, that's, and that's another sad thing, that some people's lives are only examples of how not to live. It's just, you know, sad. You don't want to be that. You don't, you don't have to be that kind of person. You don't want to be that kind of person. But sometimes people are that kind of person, you know. And you look at them and you say, that's, I don't want to live like that. And then you, you reverse back and you go, well, what were the decisions that they made that made them do those things? And there, I think there are th- at least, there's lots of ways to practice humility. Let me give you a couple of them. Um, and I'm not humble, but by the grace of God, I'm trying to pursue these things. Uh, the, the, first, the first thing that you do to, to try to practice humility in your life is you have to surround yourself with people who are not impressed by you. You know, and, 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 and the more that you excel in your career, especially, that'll be harder to do because more people will be under you and more people, salary will depend on you and more people will work for you and more people will tell you what you want to hear. And so one of the keys um, is, to, is to be around people who know you well and are not impressed by you. Um, I heard a pastor say that one of the, and all of the, the big mega church, pick on pastors for a second, uh, but all, of all the mega church and giga church pastors that um, had moral failures, and in, 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 uh, of some sort or another over the last decade, I th- someone told me that there was not one of those pastors had his key group of friends live in his city. Because what happens with a lot of pastors, and I'm just picking on pastors for a second, but what happens, especially megachurch and gigachurch pastors, all their pastors are other big pastors in other cities. That's all their friends, I mean. All their friends are in other cities. So they get on the phone, and, hey, here's, a, yep, numbers are this, and this is this. And In other words, what ends up happening is they're not known. And what you need to know is, you know, you, you need to be around people who aren't impressed by you. Like, you know, uh, my wife loves me. She respects me. She's definitely not impressed by me, you know. <laughs> Let's me know it often. Um, often, often. Um, you know, uh, the, I'm walking out of the house the other day, and she said, how many cologne sprays did you put on this morning? <laughs> and I said, that, I said the same amount I put on every day. And, and she said, how many is that? She said, two. She goes, you need one. <laughs> so... You know, and then I come here, and the, you know, the, I love the staff here, and they love me, you know, I think. <laughs> and, uh, and we all have, you know, we're all, you know, friends, thank God. I mean, hopefully that can continue on, but we're all friends, and, you know, they all pick on me, you know. And I, this, this weekend, I just, I had a, you know, I, I just kind of funny story here, but, I, but I, I wore a shirt, I tucked it in. I don't normally do that, obviously. But I, I had a sweater, sweat, like a sweater, there's a point, there's a reason I'm telling you all this. I, <laughs> I, had, I had a sweater on over it, and I got hot. And I took my sweater off, and I, was, and I was working, and I was walking around, and I had my other shirt tucked in. And five different staff said, what are you doing with your shirt tucked in? <laughs> and it was like, well, thank God you can talk to me like that. And, you know, and, 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 you're, and, you know, and I go on, I go put my sweatshirt on, and I'm like, you know, I'll just be hot. You know? but, but anyway, um, but it's good. It's, you know, so, that, so the first thing, be around people who aren't impressed by you. you know, I think a second thing is you, know, you need to have the right standard in your life. You know, the right standard is not you. Or me, you know. It's like you know, for, you know, you could have, so you could read great biographies. That would be a helpful standard. It's like read people who, you'd be amazed. It's like the reason you're here is because our ancestors were awesome. I mean, that's why you're here underneath the sovereignty of God. That's why you're here. 
So you can read some biographies or who, I mean, whatever you care about. Maybe it's business. Maybe, read about some people and you'll go, they were amazing. Warts and all, they were amazing. So that's a high standard. But then even more than that, you, you, of course our standard's Christ. You know, and it's like, well, you know, we can't compare, what we tend to do is compare everybody else to us and think we're doing pretty well usually. Like, oh, everybody else drives too fast or too slow. But I drive, you know, perfect, right? Uh, if, if you work out more than me, you take it too seriously, right? And if you work out less than me, you need to work out. Um, that's kind of that's how we view things, right? And so, so and then the third thing is um, realize that the right place to evaluate your life is the situation, not the self. And this is really, really helpful. I learned this from a few people. That, in other words, like, the, the right way to, to understand what's going on in your life if things are going well is it's usually the situation. Like, you know, here's what I mean by this. And I, forgive me again for not trying to be the hero of my own stories up here. I'm just trying to share. These are what comes to my mind as I talk about it. So a lot of times people will come to us and they will say something like, man, you know, to see a church grow as quickly as you guys have in three and a half years, like, how do you all deal with that? How do you deal with it emotionally? How do you deal with it, you know, how do you not become prideful about it? And, you know, one of the things that we do, and we're real serious about this, is we just, we think it has very little to do with the self and a lot to do with the situation. It's like, well, you know, anyone who came from a church like the Summit, what a great church, sending church, you know, and came with the team like we had, well, man, we had an incredible launch team. You know, and we're able to come to the city just as there's been a, like a change in our city and there's a revitalization. We just feel like, wow, you know, thank God that we got to be, you know, riding the wave when all of this happened. I mean, and that, and that feels good and that feels right and that's the right way to think about things. And that's the humble way to think about things. You know, and to think, well, you know, thank God for my parents and my IQ. And it's like, even you're, you're like, well, what about my work ethic? It's like, well, who knows why you like what you like and why you have the desires that you have and why you work as hard as you work. It's like, it's, it's not easy to say why you have all that. That might be a gift too from God. And so it, it, all of these things should humble us because the alternative is pride. So he becomes like an animal. I, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but w- when you become like an animal, you've, you've all done this, right? I've done this. Like when you, when, when, pride and sin make you like an animal in the sense that you want one thing and you have no self-control and it's about immediate pleasure, right? And you know that. It's like one, of you, one part of you wants everything. It's like there's hungry you, right? And, some of you, that's a real problem. It's like carton of ice cream for you, right? It's like, that's, like, that's hungry you. It's like, and you, you're embarrassed sometimes. I can't believe what I do and how much I need to eat, especially, you know, it's like there's hungry, there's lustful you, which has his or her own goals and motives and desires and often will not think about anything else when there's lustful you, right? There's angry you. That often doesn't come out until you get married or have kids and you're like, wow. And by the way, that's a good thing to know. It's like, you think you're so good. It's like, no, no, you've never been in environments where that part of you had to get turned on. You know, some of you, the only reason you think you're half as good as you are is because you're in such a controlled environment all the time. You get in some of these environments and you let some things happen to you and you, have, you go through some suffering, you'll see what's on the inside and you won't like it. You know, anyway, there's angry you and there's stressed you and there's tired you, right? And they want one thing. And so he goes on, he warns of all this, but I want to, with the time left, I want to I encourage us at the end what happens in verse 34 because there can be restoration. Here's what happens. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven. If you want to go, how do I become a Christian? That's the verse. You look up. You look away from yourself, please. Don't look inside. Don't introspect yourself. Don't think the answers are inside. Don't look at your circumstances. Look up. Like, look up to something that's greater, that's bigger, that's higher than you, God. So he says, I lifted up my eyes He says, and my reason returned to me. Here's what happens when you become a Christian. The world makes sense. You will make sense. You go, well, that makes sense. That's why I got this like internal struggle all the time between good and evil. 
This is why I fear death. This is why my conscience has been condemning me. This is why I always feel so guilty, whatever it is. It's like, when, when I've seen this again and again with college students, especially a college student becomes, comes to faith in Christ, and there were gaps in their thinking that are now filled in because they have the word of God to help them. He says, my reason returned to me. I blessed the most high. I praised him and I honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Here's what he does. He lifts up his, his eyes. He confesses his sin. Confessing just, by the way, means I agree with God. You know, what, what, how do you become a Christian? You go, God, you're awesome. I am a sinner, not a mistaker. I need a savior, not a life coach. Uh, I am unable. I can't help myself. I can't save myself. I need you to do it. And then you just start praising the Lord. That's what he did. Then you just start saying, Lord, thank you. I love you. You're the greatest. Whatever you know about God, you just start praising the Lord. And what we see here is his entire life is changed and transformed. And the last verse in the chapter says, God's able to humble those who are proud, which is hopeful for every person. And then guess what? We never hear of Nebuchadnezzar again. Because it's not ultimately about him. It was all pointing to a greater kingdom, a bigger king, Jesus Christ. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar would not humble himself, though he was a king, so he had to be humiliated. Jesus Christ was the king of kings, and he humbled himself, and yet he still was humiliated. So he humbled himself to the point of death, but then if you don't know this, they did all of the crucifixions completely naked to shame and humiliate the person. That was part of, hey, we're gonna make this painful physically and uh, psychologically and sociologically as well. And so they would do that. And then not only that, um, it says in Isaiah 52, it says, this is an interesting thing where it's a prophecy about Christ. It says, basically, this is a paraphrase of it, but it's, it says basically, he will be marred and beaten so bad that he will not look like a human anymore. You can read that. That's what Isaiah 52 says. It says, translation, he will become like a beast. Isn't that interesting? Nebuchadnezzar had to be made like a beast. Jesus Christ voluntarily laid his life down to be a beast. To be beaten for us. To die for us. And then it says, well, you know, the whole story is about chopping down the tree. Well, guess what? Guess what Jesus Christ died on? He died on a tree. He allowed himself to be chopped down. He allowed the wrath of God to be fully poured out on him. Why? So that when we have a problem, we don't go to Daniel, right? Daniel's kind of the mediator for Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, I got a problem. Where's Daniel? It's like, guess what? Jesus Christ is the mediator. We now go to Jesus Christ. And, and here's the question as we end. What are you going to do when God brings you Daniels and dreams? That's what, God brings dreams, and that's going to be the word of God. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to respond? Are you going to repent? And what are you going to do when God brings you Daniels? And sometimes it's your wife or your husband or it's your kids, and they're telling you the truth. Are you able to receive it and repent, or are you resisting and rationalizing? Are you willing to choose humility, or are you going to have to settle for humiliation? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for a good word, Lord. Lord, we want to believe in the deepest parts of us that humility is our best friend, and pride is our worst enemy. Lord, would you humble us? Lord, we don't want to be humiliated. We want to be humbled. We thank you for Christ who was humiliated for us. Lord, let us listen to the people that you put in front of us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.